We have a God that has sacrificed his life for us. And that is a God that is worth praising. Will you put your hands together for Jesus Christ, our Lord? Amen, somebody. Amen, somebody. He is, he is worth every praise. And so you know when uh, we are here in this time, I'm not lecturing to you. This is a part of our regular worship. And so just as much as you've clapped your hands, shake your feet, moved your body, I just need a couple, three or four, just three or four amens throughout my time. So just I can know that I am in the house of the Lord. Amen, somebody. Amen. Oh, I know I'm in the house. I'm grateful for the leadership of this place. Um, George Robertson, his kind words, pastor, bishop, uh, pope, archbishop, all of those titles. But also your pastoral staff, they have been incredibly grateful. I mean, uh, gracious to me. I've been incredibly grateful for them. Um, I share stories with all of them, and they're my brothers as we walk in the Lord. And I'm thankful to be back with family. Amen, somebody. Let us just dive into God's word because George reminded me we're on a time limit and uh, I forgot. I'm used to preaching hours now, Um, but it seems to me that you guys need to get out of here at a certain time. We will find ourselves in the book of Acts. Um, Many of you know it as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And so we will find ourselves in chapter 10 and we will read verses 9 through 29. I will warn you, I will not cover every verse line by line, but we, this, we are reading this chunk just for context. Please hear the word of the Lord. The next day, as they gathered, uh, next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there were there came a voice to him, rise. Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came again to him again the second time. What God has made clean, do not call do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, Peter was inwardly perplexed as what as to what the vision that what that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men that were sent to him by Cornelius, having made inquiry of Simon's house, stood at the gate and they called out to ask. They called out as whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius the centurion sent 
uh, a centurion, an upward and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Angel, to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have said, to hear what you have to say. And he, and he invited them into, to be guests in his house. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the other brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at, the, at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted, up, lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked to him, and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I asked them, why you sent for me? This, the grass withers, the flower fades, and the word God will stand forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we bless you. We thank you for your mercy and grace and how good you've been to us. Pray, God, that you use me to speak to your people and to encourage them in the way that they may walk. And if someone is here who does not know you, to enlighten them about your truth. For allow, Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, all God's people said together, amen. What if I told you laws were meant to be broken? What if I said that if there was a redemptive fulfillment, laws were meant to be broken? Many of you have already went to go see the movie, Just Mercy, by a man named Brian Stevenson, who has started a movement that has been pretty prominent amongst many in the area of Montgomery, Alabama. And that is to remember the truth. This concept of truth-telling is what he had started the Lynchon Memorial and the Legacy Museum. A few of my folks went with me just this past weekend to visit that place, and we had a wonderful time. But prior to the movie, I had read his book. And there was a story where he was talking at a church about what he actually was doing and the mission that he had. And in talking to the individuals, an older man in a wheelchair yelled from back and he said, do you know what you're doing? And Brian was kind of stumbled as to why he was yelling. And he said it again, do you know what you're doing? And he said it one more time, do you know what you're doing? He, Brian goes directly to him and he pulls him closer as he leans and says, I want you to look at the scars on my body. He says, because you are beating the drum for justice. He tells Brian to look at the cut behind his ear. And he says, I got this cut from Greene County, Alabama in 1963, trying to register people to vote. 
He pulled him closer and he said, I want you to look at, at the bruise that is right there, uh, the dark spot on my head. I got that when I was in Birmingham, Alabama in 1965 trying to register people to vote. And then he, he said, I want you to see the scar at the bottom of my neck. I, I got that in Philadelphia, Alabama, trying to register people to vote in 1964. He said, see, people see me as a weak and feeble man in a wheelchair, but they don't understand that the bruises and the scars and everything that is on my body are marks for other people. The sacrifice that I have made, these are not scars, bruises, and cuts but these are medals of honor. His wounds were for his fellow man. And as we look and understand the gospel, the cross we know is a symbol of justice for which every scar that Jesus had taken, we know that the prophet Isaiah lets us know that he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. But they give us hope. They remind us of love. They remind us and give us a picture of what is to come. And I believe that our text helps us to understand this when we think about this idea of what it means to break a law. As long as there's redemption and restoration, we ought to be glad that laws were broken in order for people to vote. We ought to be glad that laws such as Jim Crow and other segregation laws were broken in order for people to be valued as human beings. We ought to be glad that laws that have oppressed people over time are continuously and consistently being challenged in order for us to value humanity. Amen, somebody. Because there are things that are intentionally put in place in order for us to be divided. But we, if we are to reimagine re in this effort, which I have stolen that phrase, which I understand that you guys are retelling, you are repairing, you are reimagining. If we were to reimagine a new society, if we were reimagining a new community, if we were reimagining a new humanity, what would we desire? Will we desire one that is divided? Or will we desire one that continuously, can, uh, continuously moves towards the redemptive narrative that is set in place by our Lord Jesus Christ? That is what we ought to envision. That is what we ought to adopt, a deeper value of those that are our neighbors, of humanity that is created in the image and likeness of God. Many of you are saying, I know this and I believe this, but here is my challenge to all of us. Do we really value people that are different from us? I'm not just talking about ethnicity. When you are coming off of Sam Cooper, do you value the person that is standing at Highland? Standing with a sign saying, I need food, I need money for food to eat. I'm not just talking about that, brother. I'm talking about those that are standing by the Union Mission who don't have a, a place to sleep or a family to go to. Do you value that individual that you see that's in need? See, I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about the single mother who's walking down the street with her three children and she is just trying to go get groceries and you see her walking with those bags. Do you value that woman who is trying to take care of her family? I'm not talking about just her either. I'm thinking about those who have broken families, who've been traumatized because their family is going through a divorce. Do you value those families that are struggling because they are going through trials? Do we value one another? We see children ripped from their families and put in detention centers. Do we value humanity? Do we value one another? 
what I believe that our text does far beyond seeing that we have been engrafted as all nations is that it is a reality that's challenged the social order of the day that we can see a vision beyond this that Christ has come to fulfill something here's what I want you to remember don't listen to me the entire time go to sleep if you want to but just take this hide it in your heart Christ has come to fulfill the law and in his fulfilling the law he's given us power to reimagine a new community that values all humanity He's given us that ability, saints. And the reason he's given us that ability, and the reason is, is because you know Caiaphas and the other high priests, they've seen him breaking a law. But what we know about the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was fulfilling the law. And if we were to take up our manner and continue, our banner to continue to fulfill the law and reimagine, let us do it through prayer. Let us do it by adhering to the voice of God and let us do it by understanding how to have a restored view of all humanity. Those are the three points if you'd like to take notes. Prayer, listening to the voice of God and understanding how to have a restored view of humanity. Look at what our text says right here in chapter 10, verse 9. What did Peter go up to do? He went up to pray. Peter went up to pray and this prayer is to say there was an anticipation that he knew he was going to meet God in prayer. He went up to the rooftop. We don't understand why he went up to the rooftop, but we know that in Jewish custom, they pray three times a day. And this was his midday prayer. And as he was going to pray, maybe he was getting away from all of the distractions so that he may be solely focused on our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what I believe that we can take the word from that and understand what it means for us to adhere to prayer is that we ought to be praying intentionally for one another. I don't know if, if Peter may have been praying for his fellow brothers and sisters. I don't know if Peter had been praying for anything in particular. But what we do know is Peter was praying. And what does that mean? Is that when we look at prayer, that means that we are relinquishing control. We're giving up our control and we're solely depending on, on Christ because it's hard for us when we, are, we have so much and we're giving so much to go to God in prayer expecting something. Sometimes we just go to God in prayer and don't listen. No expectation to meet him. But we should also go to God in prayer to slow our busy hearts, to slow our busy minds, to teach us how to be silent and listen to the wisdom of the Lord. That's difficult sometimes because you have children that are crying. You're trying to get to the next thing. You're so busy that you're trying to get to your next meeting. But if you were to slow yourself in prayer, maybe you will hear God. But also, prayer is where God transcends, transcends our own comprehension. That when we limit God in our own subconscious, what happens sometimes, we, we, we know that we're going to pray to God, but we don't know what we're going to expect from God. I think Peter was going for an expectancy. I remember one man saying to me, Mike, I've prayed, I've, I've repented, I've done what the preacher has said. And then I said, but have you waited on God? Have you heard God speak to you in your heart, in your mind, or through your fellow believers? There is something about prayer. And what I want to encourage you all to understand that when we do pray, Selfless prayers help us not to be critical of one another. When you pray for your pastors, 
when you pray for your ministry leaders, when you pray for your nursery workers, when you pass the nursery and you pray for the babies that are in there, when you are praying for the youth department and the youth leaders, when you're praying for your elders in the session, when you're praying for the deacons and when you're praying for those that are all around you, you can't pray critical prayers. Maybe you are, maybe you're praying some critical prayers, but God does something in your heart to change you in the midst of that. Why? It's so that you can value one another. But the other thing that will be learned from Peter is that you don't pray on an empty stomach. I think Peter may have fell into a trance or he may have been so hungry he passed out. Whatever the case may be, we understand that God was there to speak directly to Peter. And when what he was communicating to Peter was difficult for him to hear. This is why we have to reimagine what it understands, how they listen to the voice of God. My son reminds me every time that he has to have my attention because he can say my name persistently without any pauses. If I lay him down to sleep and he wants me to sleep with him, he consistently calls out daddy, 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 daddy. Daddy, and I just say, son, go to bed. Daddy, daddy. What he remind me is, or what he remind me constantly is that I am going to persistently call on you until you do what I want you to do. But we don't call on God to do what we want him to do. We call on him expecting something. And I believe my son has that same expectation. When he calls on his mother, when he calls on me, there's an expectation that my parents, my father, my mother will meet my need. But then he's also comforted by our voice. There was the movie Harriet Tubman. Many of you may have seen it or you may not have seen it. But what I was fascinated, I was like, I don't know if a Christian made this movie because the biggest thing that stood out to me about Harriet Tubman is she was a woman of prayer. And when she got to Philadelphia, as she was escaping, the man asked her, how did you get here? She said, "Ah, God. And he said, excuse me, after he had, she had mentioned that she had brain trauma, that she said, I had visions that God led me here because she could not read. Here it is, is what she taught me and what I think many of us need to understand is that we ought to simply listen to God. We need to hear him in moments in where he's speaking to us. Some of you may say, well, that is strange. And is God still doing miracles? I think he did a miracle by having her who could not read being led a hundred miles somewhere else. Over 100 miles somewhere else. Don't you believe that's a miracle? Don't you believe God is still speaking? And do you understand how to discern God's voice? Do you understand how to discern the voice of the Lord? And have you even taught your children how to discern the voice of the Lord? I think that Peter's natural appetite was a picture of him falling into trance was connected to a spiritual appetite. He desired something. Whether that whether that desperation, whatever it may have been, he was looking for God in a vision, in a voice. He was looking for God to speak and meet his needs. And his appetite dissipated for food because God met him in a trance. I want you to think about this. It wasn't as if that great sheep that descended out of the air, out of the sky opened in the heavens, giving it a picture of restoration, giving a picture of the Super Bowl, giving a picture of what's to come. I want you to think about what God did. He lays a sheet out meeting the very need that Peter had. I don't think it's ironic that Peter was hungry and God lays down 
A sheet entails him, uh, a food entails him, they rise, kill, and eat. I want you to think about the fact that that, what he had on that plate, on that sheet, may have been a plate, whatever it was. Peter had to kill it. It was moving things, live things. And God told him to do it. And Peter said, and he responded to God, he said, no, I, I can't do that. And what you need to understand is that Peter must have had an issue obeying the voice of God. But here it is. I want you to understand, if you discern God's voice, think about this. God was giving Peter a new way of understanding the, the purity laws and impure, the purity laws and rituals that were given to him. Because what does Peter respond to? He says, God, I, I'm not going to eat anything that is common or unclean. I like to say it how the NIV says it. It is unholy or is clean. What is God trying to show Peter? I think he's having him reimagine something by listening to his voice. Which many of us, if we look at Leviticus 11, which goes to the ritual laws, says that God was trying to put in place laws of ritual purity so that his people may be identified as holy. When God said don't eat anything, he wanted them to identify certain foods not to eat so it can be attributed to the fact of them knowing the God that they followed. If God's saying don't eat a ham sandwich, immediately when somebody presents to him a ham sandwich, he knows that I'm not eating a ham sandwich because I believe in the Lord. Remember Caiaphas and and the crew in John 18, 28, when they went to the governor's house, they stopped because they did not want to enter because they didn't want to be defiled before the Passover. Stay with me now. I know many of y'all may not be, 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 may be having a tough time tracking me, but I want you to hear something. That what the ritual laws said was that in all aspects of life, I want not just you to do something, but moral purity. To avoid immoral purity, impure thoughts, impure ways. And God changes the way Peter understands this. Jesus had already done it in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 7. When they go to him after he says, it's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what's inside. And they're saying, what, what's inside? Is it immorality, theft, murder, idolatry, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, uh, slander, pride, foolishness? All these things, all these evil things that come from within, they defile the person. Think about it, saints. Think about it, beloved. If we then will say, well, Mike, I don't have a a, a negative view of humanity. I'm saying that we're not perfect. All of us struggle with seeing and valuing each other, whether it's the stage of life, whether it's seeing other people. What I believe the Bible does for us is it opens our eyes so that we can be empathetic to each other's needs in ways that we have never been empathetic before. It's this voice in the vision of God that directs the moral compass of Peter and all of us so that we may delight in truth and justice, wholeness and flourishing of all creation. It is not for us to simply think to ourselves that we ought to keep things away, but to understand that we have to work on our hearts. It is also reimagining so that we may restore 
have a restored view of humanity. This is an understanding in which Peter's restored view and his perception was that the people that he was about to engage, they were no longer unclean or unholy. Think about it. Peter enters this room. And who is this man, Cornelius? Cornelius is characterized throughout the Bible as the devout, just one who is open, who is uh, consistently praying, obedient to the heavenly vision. One who feared God, one who gave to the poor and to the people of God. Cornelius is a man in which we would see who has been somewhat transformed by the gospel, but yet he doesn't have a full picture of what it was. And, you know, many of you who are Bible scholars knew that there were some that would be proselytized and circumcised in order in order to be engrafted as a Jewish person or to, uh, to be engrafted into Israel. But what God was doing in, through the vision and through speaking to Peter was saying that no longer needed to happen. No one needed to work in order to be a part of the covenant community. What we see here is Peter entering in and immediately as he says to them, you know it's unlawful for me to be here, right? You know I'm not supposed to eat and visit with you. The reason I told you just, what I just told you was because there were some that would be in the presence of those that were, that were not Jewish, but they would never eat and visit with them. This is the issue in chapter 11 where he goes to the circumcised party and he has to share with them because they are asking him, why did you go to his house? Why were you with these people? He said, God showed me a vision. I just want to take a brief pause and say, how many times have many of us in our lives have been questioned about the people we're around? Questioned about the mission that God has called us to. Questioned about why we serve. Questioned about why we give our money to certain things. Questioned as to why we care about the poor. Questioned as to why we care about justice. Questioned about why we care about the sick and the afflicted. Why do we care about those that are in need? Many of us have been questioned because so many people in society would say, use your money, your influence, use everything that you have for yourself. But what God says, and I believe what he's trying to do with Peter, is that I need you to look to the needs of someone else. And I think that this is what Peter says, I'm just a man. And I also think that when Peter was wrestling with this, because it said in the Bible that he was perplexed by the vision, but yet in the next couple of verses, it said that he came to realize he truly understand. Look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth before, as he was sharing the gospel. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. I truly understand. The way that I'm trying to communicate this, that this morning, I truly understand that God has given all of humanity dignity, worth, and value. How do we know this? Because he created them in his image in Genesis 1, 28, 26 through 28. I can only imagine that Peter was flushed over with the way that Moses wrote this to, to imagine, not just to think about a Jewish nation being created in God's image, but that all of creation was created in God's image and his likeness. Moses' intent was to remind the Jewish people of that. But then he, he probably read or looked over that Genesis three fifteen that God had a 
redemptive historical plan for all of creation. And maybe he even went over to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and he scrolled through his Torah and said, maybe God is telling me that he's come back, not just for some, but for all people. That is why Abraham was a blessing. Or maybe he even thought to himself that God had all the power and authority in his hands in order for the commission to be great. It meant for him to have power and authority and that all nations were able to become, be able to be engrafted into the body of God. I think Peter may have had a vision to understand that he was connecting what God had been doing throughout the biblical narrative and what God had been doing in his life to see that he ought to value humanity. See, there are things that divide us. So many laws that divide us. There are perceptions that are unholy that divide us. There are things in our society that says this is not a gospel priority that we fight for unity. It's not a gospel priority that we value each other. But what we ought to understand it as human beings is when you are looking at those that are pushed to the margins and that are seen as at-risk children, labeled because of their trauma, labeled because of their suffering, we don't give them a chance. We essentially cast them out to the outside and say they're ready for prison. I had a brother say to me when I was in my church in St. Louis, he says, my God, I've been incarcerated. I can't be an elder or a deacon in a church. And I said, wait a minute, you are good. And he looked at me and said, am I? I said, yes, because you've been created in God's image and his likeness. How many times have you had a conversation like that? Where you had to remind somebody who felt like they lost all of their dignity and their worth because society says that you're a criminal. Our correctional facilities are not correctional facilities. We don't look to rehabilitate individuals or restore individuals. And see, this is what I believe where Peter is this awestruck idea is where he's like, nobody's unclean. Nobody's nobody is unholy. Nobody is cast out. But all people, no matter if you're in the prison system, no matter if you're homeless, no matter where you are, you are to be valued. Success as a Christian doesn't mean you have more money in your pocket. Success success as a Christian doesn't identify with a race or ethnicity. Success as a Christian doesn't look as if you're part of a particular class. Social upward mobility is not Christianity. Amen, somebody. I believe when we're thinking about reimagining the in light of the gospel priorities, we have to take up spaces. We have to understand that we're destroying boundaries and cultural laws, that we are destroying those very things that are causing us to disengage with demographics that are different from us. We need to go into these places, redeem these spaces, and know that our bodies, just like Jew and Gentile bodies, ought to be together. Black bodies and white bodies, Asian bodies and and Hispanic bodies, all need to be unified with one another. Why? Because God is saying that we're all one nation that we're all one creed, that we're all one people, and that we're all beloved by one God. I think that's what Paul says when he's talking about one faith, one baptism, and one Lord. And if you want to hear more about that this evening, we're going to Ephesians. But I want you to understand is this, this, is that our school systems, that our society has set up for us to be entertaining thoughts that automatically devalue individuals. Teachers, you know this. When you see kids come into your classrooms, when you see kindergartens come into your classrooms, when you see fifth graders come into your classroom, high schoolers come into your classroom, you are struck because of the less, because of how they view themselves. 
mom and dad, you know how to handle, you know you have to go through these situations because of your children. Just by parenting them, that you know you have to remind them that they're children of the living God every single time because of their behavior. See, these are practical ways that we do this, but I want you to bring one thing to our attention. Here is this, is that a restored value of humanity requires us to take action. And that action is not just to have a vision, but to do exactly what Peter did. Obey the voice of God. And proclaim boldly the gospel. I love jazz music. There is a jazz vocalist by the name of Gregory Porter. If you know him, say amen. Okay, a lot of people don't know him, so look him up. (laughs) But me and... My wife and a couple friends went to see him as he came to Memphis. I've seen him several times and I enjoy all of his concerts. And one, he began to explain the song, Take Me to the Alley. See, I would consider Gregory Porter like the Nat King Cole of our day in terms of his voice. And so as he was talking throughout the time, I was captivated. Because Take Me to the Alley is a song that talks about those that are sick, afflicted, those that are in the back streets, those that are in the forgotten places, those that are in the dark places. He talked about how his mother, who was a Methodist preacher, would make a Thanksgiving meal. And what she would do is she would make this meal to where the macaroni and cheese would smell good. The turkey and the dressing would smell delicious. The pound cake. And see, I know my brother Artez mentioned that he doesn't know if the, 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 the chicken fingers would be in heaven. I don't know about that either, but I'm for sure that the things that I'm naming right now will be in heaven. Amen, somebody. All of this spread was laid out in order for them to to get ready to eat and give thanks to God. She gathered all eight of her children around the table. She was a single mother. And they grabbed hands and as they held hands, they prayed. And as they began to pray, they give thanks. And it was a long prayer. But see, after they got done praying, what happened was she said, baby, pack up all of the food. So they would pack the food up and say, mama, why are we packing the food? Because we're going to the dark places. We're taking it to the alley. We're taking it to the ones that are rejected, those that are, are forgotten, those that are afflicted. Those are the ones who don't have family to go to. We're not just giving them leftovers. We'll eat the leftovers. That reimagining the idea of Thanksgiving is the deal is, is that it's not about you and what you do and how you give thanks. It's about how you think about somebody else and what you give them. And so I want to suggest to many of us, just like what he does, is that Jesus did that for us. Jesus came to the alleys, to the dark places. Many of us said, I wasn't in the alley or the dark places. I want to remind you that you were in a dark place. And that what transformed your heart was the power of the gospel priority. That Jesus was set on a cross and on that cross he was set for you in order for you to understand that there is nothing that will separate you from his love. And as he come and he embraces you, you have to remember you may have not have been you may not have been homeless. You may have been wealthy, but you were depraved. When we understand how radically corrupt we are, we'll understand how radically transformed we need to be. And if we are to reimagine anything, we ought to know that God is starting with you in order for you to see and value someone else. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and grace and how good you've been to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are one who takes us to the dark places. And God, as many have heard the phrase before, darkness cannot drive out darkness. And so, Jesus, I pray 
that you do the work. By your love, and you drive out every element of evil in our hearts and our minds so that we may look more like you. For we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said together.